0: So I wanna talk about uh, vision. Um, I wanna talk about the vision that I have and that, that I hope that we would have as a group uh, of followers of Christ. It's not so much that, it doesn't feel like I have this vision, it feels like this vision has me. You ever had like an obsession, something just has a hold of you and this has had a hold of me ever since I moved to Santa Rosa in particular. Um, I moved here back in 2001, and I grew up in Southern California. And I pastored first two churches in Southern California. So that was my context, the environment that I was used to. When I was getting ready to come up to the Bay Area, there were two things that I was pretty sure of that I, I knew. And I had people warn me of the first thing. It's really expensive to buy a house up here. People said, you won't be able to afford a garage. Um, that was one. The second thing that I knew was that the, the soil for the gospel of Christ was really hard. I knew, I was pretty sure, there aren't a whole lot of really big churches in San Francisco. You, know, you think of other urban centers around the country and there will be mega churches, a mega church being 2,000 or more. You just don't really have that up here in San Francisco. You have it in Sacramento, if you go over to the central part of our state, but not on the coast. Um... And so I knew that that was true, and and, and it it didn't take me long to find out how the spiritual climate was different. My first memory back in 2001, I met like a 10-year-old white kid out in the parking lot. And I don't know why, we got talking about religion or spiritual things, and he told me how in his home they have little idols that they worship. I was like, whoa. I'd never met a white kid in America who had little idols and statues in their house that they worshiped. I go, well, that's, that's at first maybe in Haiti or India. You know, okay, America. That's what we do in the Bay, that's what people do in the Bay Area. Um, and then I heard stories, you know, as things started trickling in of experiences that my wife would have. You know, people in, in educated roles who were in the Wiccan uh, religion. And they would be, they'd go home and they'd find insects in their house and they cast a spell on the insects using Wicca to try to drive the insects out of their house. It's like, well, never heard of that one either. That's the first. Never heard that in Southern California. Uh, I, I heard of the injustice in, in, the, in the workplace where, where some people would be able, allowed to have their Buddha statues on their, on their desks, and then a Christian goes to put up Christmas paper at Christmas time with a picture of the manger, and they're asked to take it down. So you can have a Buddha statue on your desk, but you can't put. A Christmas paper with the, the, the manger scene. It's, isn't that a double standard? You know? It was strange. And then there was sometimes just people that I met where there was outright hostility. Uh, met a guy downtown once who, who, when we were talking about spiritual things, he thought, oh, that thing of, you know, Jesus dying for our sins was just disgusting to him. Why anybody would do that? Why anybody would believe that? And so um, I thought, okay, so this is the world that. I live in, that we live in, in the Bay Area. And then, uh, you know, I I was kind of wondering, you know, what could be causing this visceral gut level resistance to the gospel, which is quite a bit stronger than anywhere that I've ever lived. And at its core, I believe it's diabolical. The scripture that came to my mind almost as soon as I started living in Santa Rosa it was 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. And it says, the God of this age, that would be Satan, the devil, the evil one, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So I really believe that behind all of this resistance, this spite often towards Christianity and the church, I believe it's really ultimately the devil's doing. This isn't just about unbelieving people who don't believe. This is about people with the perception problem, who for various reasons have a distorted view of our loving, redeeming, saving, good, good father in heaven. There's a lot of people who cannot sing in the Bay Area that chorus, good, good father, because they don't believe he's good. And that misperception, I believe, is literally killing them. It's that, it's that serious, this problem. The latest numbers I have on the Bay Area of people who go to church, and I, it's, been, it's been, you know, it's varied. It was more when I first came here, you know, 18 years ago. The latest that I heard at a, at a conference was 3% of Bay Area people go to church. That's out of about 8 or 9 million people. 3%, 3 out of 100... That's Catholic church, evangelical churches, There's even churches that aren't Christian, just spiritual groups that get together. 3%. 3 out of 100, that means for every one of you that's sitting here, there are 32 people not doing this kind of thing today. That's really bad. That almost sounds like Hindu India. There's such this distaste. I I had a Christian leader tell me this, who's kind of more in tune with this kind of thing. And I I was, I'm like, really? When he told me, he said, you know, when you and I, he's about my age, he said, you know, when you and I were growing up and if we went to church, he said, you know, going to church was a good thing. I mean, people, some, many people wouldn't do it, but, but in general, going to church was a good thing. He says today for people, many people going to church is a bad thing. For them to be in a church for them would be bad. It would be like for a lot of us, like going into an adult bookstore. You'd say, Well, that would be bad. And and some people actually like have this view of the church that if I would go, it'd be it would just be a, a terrible thing to do. So let's think about the church for a second. Three percent of the population in the Bay Area goes to church. Um, what is the church? Well, first of all, don't think of it as uh, organized religion. Don't think of it as, you know, the Kiwanis Club. Don't think of it as a uh, united way. The church is the body of Christ. It's a living organism. The number one, the, you know, the word church is used in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only twice. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. You don't even find the, hardly find the word in the Gospels. You find it more in, in Paul's letters. When you you think about a metaphor that describes what it is, it's the body of Christ. So a body is a living, breathing organism. And it, it describes Jesus being the head or the brains. He's giving life to the rest of the body. I love that metaphor, the body of Christ. That says church. When I think of the church, that's what I think of. So to be in the church... Truly to be in the church, a part of the body of Christ, is to have the breath of God in your, in your spirit, to be alive spiritually. And for people who are not connected to the body of Christ, to be disconnected from the head, is not to have that breath of life of God. I mean, it is, it, 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 we don't take the church, I think, seriously enough. It, t- it gets slammed a lot. It really does. And you go back, go back into the in the, the book of Acts and you look at Paul's conversion. Here's the guy who was slamming the church. Bam, bam, bam. He's going arresting Christians, having them persecuted, even says, even killed. And then one day he's on his donkey. He's going to go arrest some more Christians in Damascus. And God knocks him off his donkey. The light of Christ shows and he goes, Who is it? He's blinded. He, Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, his name was Saul at the time, he got his name changed to Paul later. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, wait a second. Jesus had been, he'd lived, he'd been crucified, he'd been raised from the dead, he'd ascended into heaven. Physically, that, that body that he had when he was born as a baby, that was not there. He was up in heaven, but he's saying to Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, what was Saul doing? He was attacking the church. Jesus was saying, to attack the church is to attack my body. The church of Jesus is the physical expression of Jesus in the earth today. So that's what it is. To remain in sin without a Savior, to be disconnected is to be dead. Spiritually, not physically. God said to Adam, let's go back into the Garden of Eden. God said to Adam, Adam, you can eat from all these trees, you can live here, it's beautiful, it's paradise, perfect. Here's one thing you can't do. You must not eat from the tree. There are two things, two trees not to eat from. First one, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you break that, if you sin, if you trespass my word, God said to Adam, you will die. Well, Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How did he die? Well, he didn't die physically because he went on to live. He lived like 900 years. He lived a long time. How did he die? He died in his relationship with God. He was cut out. He was driven out of paradise. And life turned sour after that. How did it turn sour? His marriage went bad. His job went bad. The environment went bad. Everything went bad because Adam cut himself off from God, who's the life giver, through his sin. He became spiritually dead. Now, Ephesians 2.1 also repeats that same idea, the same truth that was alive for Adam is, is alive for people today. Ephesians 2.1 puts it this way. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were spiritually dead. I remember what that was like. I remember my misperceptions. I remember I was messed up in my head when it came to who God and who Jesus was. And I was raised in the church. I went to it all the time. I, go, I went to church more than we go today, like a lot of you did. I mean, it was Sunday morning, it was Sunday night, it was Wednesday night, it was revivals. I I was immersed in the church culture. But I didn't get it. Because I was cut off from Jesus. I hadn't given my life to Him. So you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Spiritually dead. And how did we live? It goes on to say, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So whatever impulses we have, whatever thoughts, when the flesh is in control we just follow that and there's a spiritual deadness because of it now look at look around at santa Rosa. look at the bay area how does this spiritually dead life manifest itself think of that that line you know it was that movie you know dead man walking so we're talking about dead men walking all around us all over the place how does that look Well, how about a constant refrigerator-like buzz? It's always there of envy, of jealousy, of resentment, of anger, of unforgiveness, of pride, of lust. We run into this stuff, well, we deal with it ourselves. We see it all around us. How about a hate for certain people groups? Or a lack of understanding and compassion? How about a greedy, ungrateful spirit never being content? It's never enough. How about a selfish, me-first life? How about contempt for some people? How about a life dominated by fear and paranoia and insecurity? Does that sound familiar? All you have to do is live. You'll, You'll see this all around you. We could throw in the, uh, the throngs of people who will be coming to, the, whenever that is, the Emerald Cup at the fairgrounds. People longing to live in a drunken stupor for various reasons. Either experimentation, to just chill, to deal, self-medicate the pain in their life. Deceptive words and promises that because we are deceptive as people... We live in a, in a society where we now we have to have contracts with fine print when we buy houses and cars and, and appliances because we can't just shake on it and say, my word is good. We don't believe each other. I, I would just love to live in a culture where we didn't have to do that. When you buy a house, you didn't have to go through 250 pages of documents to buy a house. That's basically there because we can't trust each other. There's the, the, the man, we're, we live in a, a culture that's so into pleasure. I just want to feel good. The Bible talks about, in the end times, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We just want to feel good. And we'll do anything to feel good. Well, sometimes it's, it, we need to feel bad. Sometimes there needs to be, there's a good pain. There's good pain and there's bad pain. If always, always just trying to feel good is going to take us into a bad place. There's foul abuse of language. There's violence. There's murder. There's despair that leads to, to suicide. There's anxiety, and the list goes on. That's what dead man looking. That's what dead man looking looks like, and it, it's it's there every day, just the way your refrigerator is buzzing in the background when you go home today. It's just there. Now, as bad as that is, and that's pretty bad. There's a lot of pain in this in this city. There's a lot of hurt. If you were to go out and talk to sheriff deputies and policemen and ask them about the stuff that they see every day, you t- ask them about what they see in children's lives, the kind of stuff that they have to deal with. If you were to talk to medical professionals, talk to people who work in these assisted care facilities and see the misery in people's lives. I mean, you want to feel good about your life. I mean, sometimes just going in an assisted care, you see the suffering in those places. I mean, when I, st- as a, when I, I was going into, into convalescent homes when I first started as a pastor, and I'm telling you, it motivated me. I saw the suffering like I would never seen in my life. I was like, I gotta take care of myself, take care of my body, take care of my relationships, you know? There's a lot of hard stuff that goes on. People are hurting, we live in a tragedy, that's our story, it's, it's tragic. But here's the thing, when you stretch it out into eternity, it gets worse. See, this is what's so, and so we're saying there's 3% of the people in the Bay Area that are connected to the church or the body of Christ. Now, I know there are some of those who say, I'm a believer, but they're not a part of the church for various reasons. But, you know, a vast majority who just are disconnected. And, and you look at that and, and listen to what Jesus had to say. I want to listen to some people. They talk about, okay, let's take being dead into eternity being disconnected where that leads us and and this is this is hard to listen to this is very disturbing this has always disturbed me Matthew 5:22 and I'll read to you what Jesus said about this and then Paul and Peter and John they all had something to say about this Jesus said in Matthew 5:22 but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raha, it's kind of, I don't know what that word means, it's more like a sound in the back of your throat, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Oh, he talks about the fire of hell. He goes on to verse 30. He says, and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So here's Jesus referencing hell. Chapter 7, verse 13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. And then he says in uh, chapter 16, verse 26, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? So we can lose our soul by just trying, trying to gain the whole world. And then chapter 25, there's more places where Jesus talks about this kind of suffering. But chapter 25, verse 41, and then he will say to those on his left, God will say, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. And he goes on. Okay, that's really sobering. That's really hard to hear. Paul goes on, and this is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. He says, God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. So that's Paul. Peter goes on to say, it's the second Peter chapter two, verse four. "For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, so the angels sinned, they were cast out, they became demons. But He sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness. Drop down to verse 9. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. There's going to be punishment, the day of judgment. This is especially true for those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. And then the last one I want to read is, um, this is John who had a revelation and saw heaven. And he said this this is uh, Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire the lake of fire is the second death anyone whose name was not found written in the book of fo- of life was thrown into the lake of fire That's like we're talking about an ending where there's literal eternal conscious suffering And I can't think of anything that's more sobering and more difficult to think about than that. In fact, it's so bad, I think, that we want to deny it, that it's true. But if it's true, that would be a foolish thing to do. When we consider the source, Jesus... How can we not believe him? Of all the people that we could ever believe about life beyond the grave, there's only one person who knew it like he did. He pre-existed his birth in Bethlehem. He was present at creation. Jesus was crucified. He was raised from the dead in between Friday and Sunday. It says he went and he visited the spirits in prison in hell. Jesus has been to hell and back. He knows what it's like. Jesus knows the eternal spiritual realm like no other person. You know, I hear sometimes celebrities talk about like they know eternity. I'm like, why Why are you saying that? What do you know about eternity? You don't know anything. And you talk like an authority, like like everything's going to be hunky-dory and okay. It's not going to be for a lot of people. In fact, I believe for right now, for a lot of people, it's not okay. There are people who've died who are separated from God, and they've started this. So Jesus, in his love for us, is warning us, letting us know. That would be very unloving of him to know that something is true and then not tell us about it. Personally, I would not appreciate that. If I know something bad is coming, I want to know. So the present and future is bleak for the vast majority of Bay Area residents. But there is a powerful hope. If every person outside of Christ today, in the Bay Area, let's say it's 7 million people, in this moment, in this hour, decided to trust Jesus as their Savior, every one of them would be saved. His death on the cross, his resurrection, the blood that he spilled is effective for everybody who wants it. And that's the good news. We're called... To be a part of the greatest, biggest rescue operation that's ever been launched. If you're in the body of Christ, our job is to bring more people into the body of Christ. But how do we do that? Well, the answer to that question is actually in the New Testament. And it's also tied to our vision to make God look good. That's, that's my vision. It's got a hold of me. I can't drop it. It's been here since 2001. We've got to make God look good. Because people are being, by the enemy, the diabolical one, they're being fooled and they're not seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. If they really believed that the Father in heaven was the best being on all the earth, they would turn to him and trust. But I know what that's like because I wasn't there either one t- at one time in my life. And I did not think he was really good. And so why put my hands? Why trust him if he's not? So we got to work to change this perception, and actually that's, that is scriptural for us to do that, to make God look good. I want you to, Jesus said this, he said, you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth. If you're the light of the earth, you need to let your light shine, don't put it under a bushel. No, don't, you know, don't, let, don't let Satan blow it out, remember that old Sunday school course? He also said that you will be my witnesses. Last thing he told his followers, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's us. It's us. But how? Well, here's what are some of the things that we've been taught about how to make God look good. I love this scripture. And if you want to fill these in, these are on your, uh, on your notes. I want to start in, in Colossians. Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6 says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So here's three things about how can we make God look good. First of all, by acting wisely toward outsiders. We need to be thoughtful and think how do I relate to people who are outside the grace of God, who are outside of his family? It's not there's not a program. He can't give it to you. We have to, we have to ask Lord how to direct me in how I need to respond to this person, how do I need to be in my job, how I what kind of neighbor I need to be, how do I how do I in my family? How do I act towards my family who aren't following you? We need to be thoughtful about this. Acting wisely. Number two, we, need to, by, by, we can do this by making the most of opportunities. Sometimes doors open and we need to step through those doors and be a witness. Number three, by conversing with grace. That's a big one. Not being driven by our default positions, our knee-jerk responses. Okay, Let's be honest with ourselves. We're not talking about right now. We're not talking about people who are in church. We're talking about us. What do we need to do to make it so that people are drawn to Christ, to make him attractive? And, and, uh, you know, I'll admit for myself, my knee-jerk default position is anger. So I have to watch myself in certain situations where I get angry. That's not the kind of response that's going to attract people. I may be right, but I can be right in the wrong kind of way. And I can push people away, and that's not right. You know... Now, I've told you a little bit about my, my relationship with my son, one of my sons, and how, you know, I realized, and this, this was not a good relationship, I had to change because I couldn't change him. There's only one person in the world that I can be really changing, and that's me. I can't change you. I can't change my family. I can change me. And when, when I began to realize, here's where I'm failing my son, In the way that I responded to him, and I found out I had to think about it. I use wisdom. God, show me what am I? What's wrong? What's underneath my anger? You know, your fear is underneath your anger. Oh, okay. And so when I began to get unpacked, then when I began to talk to him, I could talk to him with grace instead of being judgmental or being being like this. You know, and he could feel the tension over the phone line. And when I started to change, he started to change. And on our relationship changed, and it was an amazing transformation. But we got to speak with people with grace, and sometimes that means saying nothing. We just need to go back. And then, here's another thing. Uh, in First Timothy 6:1 1, and First 1 Peter, chapter three, verse one, two, by, by respecting the people around us, either our, our employer by being a good worker, or respecting our spouse and in this case of First Peter three, it's about wives to husbands whose husbands aren't believers. Submitting to them, respecting them, and winning their husband over by their good behavior. Okay, so by respecting the people around us. And that may be, hey, you know what, I got this lazy bone in me. I don't like to work real hard. And your change may be, I got to go back to work tomorrow. And I got to figure out to be, how to be a better employee. How can I bless this company? How can I bless my boss? What can I do to be the best employee that I can possibly be? And the last one, number five, by living really good lives. I like what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I just heard recently somebody doing good was accused of wrong they were accused of being Mother Teresa that was the slam well just keep being good you don't have to argue a good life wins the argument so imagine being part of a movement that begins to change perception of God that the unchurched people in Santa Rosa have of him you know I think, you know what I think? I think that vision is worth the rest of our lives. It's taken us decades in San Francisco to get to this place where people are so hostile to God. There was a time, I think back in the 80s, there was a mega church here in Santa Rosa. You know, it was the Luther Burbank Center. What's the name of the church? Christian Life Center. Things went south, boom. It affected the impact, the, 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 the reputation of the church in the city. You know, San Francisco used to be, things were different. I I believe it's going to take a while to do this, but to me, I think it's completely worth our life for the rest of our lives to do this because people's happiness and future well-being is at stake. And if they can remain cut off from Jesus, they remain spiritually dead. And there's no other way of changing this. We can't change it with a philosophy. We can't change it with education. We can't throw money at it. It's Jesus alone. And sometimes it's not that difficult. Like I said, we're trying to start this relationship with Brookhill Elementary School. Um, And and so we've done about six trips to the school to deliver donuts and pastries to the the teaching staff. I got this note last week from Brookhill Elementary. And it was signed by all the teachers. It says this, thank you so much for the donuts. It was such a wonderful surprise and made us feel the support of the community. Well, that's just one step, but it's not really hard. That's not really hard. That's just doing this thing. How can we step into this place and begin to change people's perception? Well, let's just do an act of kindness, and we're going to keep doing that. So let me give you some other ideas to help us do that. Okay, and These, again, are in your notes. Building, You can do this by building trusting relationships. Who in your world can you build a relationship with? I would just encourage you to start with your family. What, what would need to change there? It's asking questions. It's listening. It's being kind. It's making time. Build those relationships. And, and again, again, remember, you can only change yourself. So what about you can you change That would radiate the goodness of God to the people in your family. I had an older woman ask me, she says, none of my four kids go to church. She says, why is that? I said, I don't know. I don't know, but, but I do know that where you are, that you can start to change things with your kids so that they'd be more favorable, more open. You know, it's a. It takes it takes some work. It takes some sensitivity. I was on the phone with my son, and he'd had a rough patch. He'd been struggling, and he said, "Yeah, I'm not only his dad, but I'm a pastor." And so you kind of expect the you know the the religious th- angle, and so I'm a little sensitive to that. I don't want to be too pushy with him. And uh, we're on the phone. He's t- he starts sharing with me a couple of problems, uh, things that he need. I said, "I said, would you?" I felt a little prompting. So I, 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 I wasn't 100% sure. You know, I was like, I'm going to probe. And if he, boom, he comes back, I'm just going to back off. But I probed a little bit. I said, would you like me to pray for you? Is there anything I could pray for you for? He said, yeah. He gave me two things. And then I thought, well, I'm going to say, can I, so I said, can I pray for you right now over the phone? He said, yeah. And I prayed and I prayed scripture over his life. I prayed a pretty direct prayer. And we got done, I could tell it meant something to him. He appreciated it. It's just a matter of, God, how can we be gracious in these relationships? To begin to draw. And what, what do I need to change? You may need, you, maybe you don't know, but you could ask the Lord. Okay, is there something that I need to change? So that my relationship with my child or my parent or my brother or sister would, would be different. A second thing is serving the community. We can make God look good by serving the community. Uh, We have several people sign up for Brook Hill, but we've got Nomadic Shelter coming up in October through April for seven months. You can be a part of that. Redwood Gospel Mission. Um, We're a little delayed in this. It's it's nobody's fault, but building homes for people who lost their homes in the fire. Uh, If you have other ideas, great. But how can we work out in the community serving it to change the perception? And the last thing I'll, I'll just put here is by providing bridge events. That's where we invite people here to things like Harvest Festival or Valentine's Banquet or Financial Peace University. Happy Time Christmas that's coming up in December. Just encourage you to be be thinking about those things. You know, we're, we're made for this. We're made to live for the praise of his glory. To make God look good, to know there's a lot of people who don't like the church because of experiences they've had or things that they've heard. They're, they they wonder, and so they they've turned them off. But this is too important. This this is life and death, and so I I want to invite you into it, and ask God to help us humbly, gracefully, begin to shine His light, to radiate that light into our into our community. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, you. Um, You really care about the people of San Francisco and Santa Rosa. You know everybody that lives up here, the, I don't know, eight or nine million people. You care about everyone. You died to save everyone. You want them all to live with you forever, all of us. But there are so many who are in the far country doing their own thing, and they're disconnected. They're spiritually dead. They're dead men walking. And Father, um, for those of us who are believers, you want to use us. We're your ambassadors to bring them back. So Father, by your Spirit, show us how to do it. Show us how to be redemptively involved in the lives of our families, family members that aren't believers. Whatever it is, praying, writing notes, Stepping through open doors, whatever it is. Being non-judgmental. God, show us how to do this. Give us wisdom. Lord, give us wisdom in the way we act toward outsiders. When the door opens, give us boldness and love to walk through the door. God, give us grace in our speech, in the way we talk. Help us to recognize those default settings we have of fear, suspicion, or anxiety, or anger. That causes us to respond in an unproductive way. Just point it out and begin to change us, Lord. And Father, help us to know how we can, what we need to change in our in our schedule, Lord. What, what kind of time we need to give to this? How we can support things financially, or Lord, how we can we can make we can just put our agenda aside or schedules aside to make room for people. Lord, we want you to be radiant in, in the Bay Area. We want you and your gospel to be the most glorious thing people can think about. Better than football, better than basketball, better than baseball, better than sailing your sailboat on the bay, better than eating good food down in, on Fisherman's Wharf. Lord, that you would be so far superior to any other experience In this beautiful part of the country. You are such a beautiful name. You're so wonderful. You are so powerful. So use us Lord. Thank you for calling us. Into this great enterprise. This great mission. Of sharing the gospel. With lost people. Go with us Lord. Help us to see, open our eyes, and help us to be ready to to give ourselves away in those moments. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the people that are here and what you are about to do in the days and months and years ahead. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. 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 Grace be with you.